Rockers. Welcome to Hoosier Illusion, hosted by me, Neil Tafflinger, and Ryan J. Downey, two grown-up hardcore punks, longtime journalists, and longtime friends born and bred in Indianapolis, Indiana. After growing apart, we're reuniting to talk about who we were, who we are, and where we're going. Follow along as we navigate the rugged terrain of our mental landscapes, littered with pop culture, subculture, and the odd reference to Johnny Ringo, James Dean, Axl Rose, and other notable Hoosiers. When I was in West Virginia, we stopped at a restaurant for a short while to talk with my aunt before uh, before we all headed home. And my son, in uh, the way that he does, got me Googling uh, the difference between ligaments and tendons. So I looked it up, and then I kind of went down a rabbit hole of looking at uh, Renaissance-era anatomical drawings. And it made me think that it made me think about the people who whose you know, their corpses were stolen uh, for the benefit of science or the people who were even murdered so that doctors would have uh, cadavers to work with and learn from. And it made me think about becoming or choosing to become uh, an emotional version of that to basically allow myself to be uh, dissected emotionally so that other people could maybe learn more about how they work and, and derive some benefit from me being, you know, flayed open for everyone to, to look at. May have to copy and paste what you just said and make that the intro for every episode. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been thinking about that a lot again this week um, because of what happened um, at the end of the week that I, you know, after I got back from West Virginia. I don't want to steal your thunder. Can I say it? Sure. Uh, <laughs> you lost your job. Right? I got fired. You were fired. Um, yeah. I've, I've decided that euphemisms for the most part are bullshit mm. and we should just say things like, yeah, I don't know if, I don't know if you caught my hesitation. I realized that I, I was all, <laughs> I was all excited to be the one to say it. And then I realized like, you I'm don't not want to sure say how it. to say it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know where the job went. Um, I, <laughs> I, I left it at, at my previous place of employment. Um, so, yes. um, yeah, I my my employment was was terminated. I was let go. Whatever you want to say, it's the the company decided uh, it didn't want to employ me anymore, and I'm no longer employed by them. The company decided it was time to exit, terminate, or exit. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we just have to hope there's an audience for the bizarre myriad overlapping references that we have um yeah well so i'll i'm going to take the interviewer position here for a moment okay um how long were you employed by this company and uh you know depending on how much or how how much it's even relevant or important to get into the specifics of the company itself you know if you could describe kind of what type of work you were doing and how it may be different from what you were doing before I'm not going to get into specifics for various reasons. Um, the primary reason being 
I have no ill will toward them. Um, the, I have no ill will toward the company in general or the people specifically. Um, and I have no desire to harm them or even attempt to do them harm, um, which is part of this whole thing that we'll talk about um, for the next however many minutes. And in some ways, I don't think that those details are relevant to what I want to talk about, which is my experience processing it and responding to it. You know, it could be, it could be any number of employers and any number of industries. Sure. Uh, yeah. I was just thinking you know, if, if there's any kind of broad strokes you want to put, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I would you know, say you didn't, I, you didn't I, work I, in a factory or <laughs> no, I, I had a white service. collar, <laughs> I had a white collar job, um, in the communications. And how long were you there? Uh, two and a half years. And how, well, I, I, cause I think part of what's interesting to me, and I would, and I think may figure into, you know, the stuff that we ultimately want to talk about surrounding it, which you just described is how, what you were doing for the last couple of years differed from not only your creative side, your entrepreneurial side, uh, cause you also were and continued to be throughout a business owner during that, during yeah, that I'm, period of employment. I'm um, actually recording in the office of the business that my wife and I own. There you go. Um, and, and, but also how, how it was, a, it was a shift from, you know, what you were doing professionally prior to that. And again, I mean, and I, if there's a way to talk about that without <laughs> getting into the specifics of it, but yeah. I, but I just wonder how much that factors into how it all turned out. I spent, God, close to nine years, I think, at least eight years, uh, working for the legacy news organization in Indianapolis, the Indy Star. Um, the, the first three and a half years, four years, <clears throat> was as a reporter uh, on the entertainment side and then shifting a little bit into like digital production. And the second term, separated by three years, where I was at, where I was working elsewhere, um, I came back and I was first an editor on the entertainment side and features. Then I transitioned into a role, the role that I ended my like four years there with, which was I'm trying to think of a way to describe it without using the name. Basically, I was a readership. Uh, analyst, digital readership analyst. So if you're on the website, reading stuff, watching videos, clicking through photo galleries, I'm on the other side, watching your behavior, looking for trends, identifying opportunities, uh, identifying things that we shouldn't be doing or we should be doing better or differently. And looking um, at them literally through their webcam, <laughs> recording, recording them as they're watching pornography. Exactly. Listen, it was, listening to them via their Alexa. Yeah, it was like person of interest without any of the drama. Um, <laughs> or the fun. So, the fun or the action. Um, just people staring at a screen reading. Um, so I did that, and then I also managed the social media team for The Star as well as three sister publications in Lafayette, Muncie, and Richmond, Indiana. Um, 
because we had a, like basically a centralized social team. So, you know, their their Facebook and Twitter accounts were managed in Indianapolis for a period of time when I was there. Um, so just basically studying reader behavior, studying analytics, um, planning content, uh, managing social accounts and like all that goes into that, um, you know, doing social strategy for multiple accounts, managing the people who are actually hands on. Uh, so that's, that's what I was doing when I left the star, uh, the USA Today network, um, to go to work for a, uh, relatively small communications company and I was hired to kind of figure out how to build a content business there to oversee their own content, you know, their own blog and social, but also build out the business of selling that service to clients. You'd built a considerable career for yourself in one place doing one type of thing and then kind of shifted. Uh, what led to that transition? I was doing a shitload of work. Um, there were, I took one job, <clears throat> then I absorbed another person's job and then I absorbed responsibilities from a second person when they transitioned out of the local office to the corporate side. They, they moved 50 yards across the room, but they no longer reported locally. They reported up to uh, McLean, Virginia. Um, so I told my supervisor directly that I loved my job. Uh, I loved what I did. I was happy doing it and wanted to do it as long as I could. Um, but considering that I was the only person in the company with my particular portfolio of responsibilities, I wanted to talk about my compensation structure uh, so that it would take that into account. You know, uh, they were sure. getting a lot of they were getting a lot of value for me um, that I wasn't being compensated for. And I was essentially ignored. So uh, after after that experience, um, I, I did what my what my dad uh, has always referred to as uh, opening yourself up to the universe. In my head, I guess in my heart, I just said, you know, I'm I'm done here. So whatever comes up comes up. You know, like I'm I'm not a job seeker. Um, when I work somewhere, I'm there. And then when I'm not there, I think about what's next. Um, so I was never, I was never one to like just keep an eye out for what was going on, um, because I feel like that distracts you from being the best where you are. I just decided, hey, I, I'm, if somebody else wants me uh, and values me, then I'll listen. And a couple months later, I got uh, a message from an old family friend who said, hey, would you consider? doing this job and I said I don't know so but I'm I'm willing to talk about it so the departure from the star going to somewhere else was also part of my my journey towards being a more well person my work at the star was was mission driven 
it satisfied my desire to be a martyr, to uh, fight against the wind, to champion a cause, uh, to constantly be fighting, whether it was my coworkers or critics or whoever, like it was, I had a very adversarial approach to work then, which softened over time because as I became a manager, I realized that the way I was handling people was the same way I was handling like fights and you wear people out being that way all the time. So, so I started, I started getting better just at, at handling people, um, in my last couple of years there. But when I, when I opened myself up to the universe, so to speak, I decided that part of what I needed to work on was my, my desire to, to be a martyr, to be a workaholic, to feel responsible for all manner of things that are not my responsibility. And while I could have worked on that stuff and stayed there and I don't know, been laid off two, three years later, I decided that if I was an alcoholic, yeah, you can work on your sobriety and hang out in bars, but it's right. probably not the best place to be. So knowing that that work environment like fed all of my bad emotional habits um, and was like, it, it was perfectly suited for my emotional deformities. I decided to leave and try something else. As you mentioned, uh, you know, you're in, in the moment, uh, in the now focus on the job at hand mentality and that you sort of, you know, you wait until you're in between jobs basically to think about the next thing. Is that what's happening now? Was there some overlap in this process given that you, you had some indication that your firing was impending? Yeah. Um, I spent the last 30 days at my job in a weird mental state uh, because I was at once doing literally everything I could to kick ass at that job. Um, everything I could do to, you know, to address any problems that existed and simultaneously not being confident that I could, you know, for lots of reasons. So it was, it was kind of, you know, doing this work for my conscience to know that, you know, I didn't, that I, that I, that I did my best. You know, I tried, uh, if it didn't work out, it wasn't because I mailed it in uh, at the end or didn't give a shit because, you know, until a few months ago, I, I had no desire to leave. You know, I, I wanted to be there forever. But things change uh, and experiments fail. And I got the sense that I wasn't long for that job. So I started looking around for other stuff while at the same time, you know, trying to stay focused on, on, I was trying to, trying to tend to the flame and, and get, you know, try to keep it alive. You know, my, my primary goal was to stay there and make it work. My secondary goal was to not be completely fucked if it didn't. Uh, assuming people are listening to the episodes in chronological order, to have all of this happen right in the midst of everything else that's been happening for you recently, how do you compartmentalize it? How do you, uh, or, or can you, or is it all 
intertwined constantly? Or it's all intertwined. This event, I can't I can't look at this event in isolation. It's it's part of a continuum, and it's it's kind of the the Salt Bay garnish on the very very full multi course emotional meal that I've been working through over the past couple of years, mm-hmm. and it it makes me I don't know I. I'm not one for like fate or, uh, you know, the mysterious workings of an interventionist God, but you're not, you're not sure that fate's got a driver. (laughs) No, no. I'll see your Nick. I'll see your Nick cave and and raise you a, (laughs) raise you an Indiana. No, uh, fate's on, uh, fate's a, fate drives a Tesla. It's on autopilot. (laughs) Um, so by the fate that drives a Tesla, that's like a 16-year-old named fate whose <laughs> parents are hipsters in Los Angeles. Who's, yeah, whose dad is 70 and he's 16. Um, <laughs> so what I've been – how I've been viewing this you know, since it happened, because like I said, I, I had about a month in my head to, to emotionally process what was happening, what I thought was going to happen, and then when it did happen – you know, there's sadness, there's disappointment, but pretty quickly I moved through that. It's like, you know, we've, we've dated people before and the relationship has been over before we broke up. And then the breakup just kind of feels like a relief. So after, during slash after that sadness, you know, it's like, well, I'm glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. You know, like everyone's free of that situation. We can just move on, um, with what we've learned. And what I feel like I've learned is that I'm able to employ all of the emotional skills that I've been developing over the past three years. It just, it just kind of, looking back you know it's it's all you always create a narrative of your life in reverse like uh giving sense to things that are senseless and random while they're happening but the way i've responded at least feels kind of like like an emotional leveling up over and over and over again three years ago i wasn't sure if i was going to be married in 2019 I had two children that I love. I love my wife. I just wasn't sure if I was going to be able to figure out how to make it work. Since then, that's no longer a question or a concern because I've sorted my shit out. I have a third child that wasn't in the plans, and we've had to deal with the complications of that and the challenges that having an infant at our age, in our career stage, in our business stage – uh, you know, the effects of that. And then, you know, changing. And by, and by your age, you mean you are, in fact, 105. <laughs> I'm just saying that having an infant at 32 is a hell of a lot easier than having an infant at 40. Um, so all of that is just like, you know, it's, you know, 
It's like I'm just on the bench, and like every time I finish a rep, somebody puts more weight on the bar. <laughs> you know, like yeah. great job. You know, lift more. Great job, lift more. Great job. And every time I get stronger, I get a more challenging thing to deal with, and I continue to and yet deal with them. No guiding hand in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> I kid, yeah. I kid, I kid. So, um, so these things keep happening, and I'm managing. You know, like maybe I'm not killing it, but it's not killing me, and. I'm not going home and drinking every night just to keep from thinking about it. And I'm not hitting my kids because I can't control my temper and I'm not unhappy, you know, like that, that's, that's the thing that I, you know, I came away with, you know, I woke up and it's like, I'm, I'm unemployed against my, against my wishes for the first time in my adult life. And I felt fine, you know, like it, it was not, I didn't feel like it was a, an indictment of me as a professional or a person. I didn't feel like it was something to be embarrassed about or ashamed of. Um, I didn't even feel like it was like a setback even, you know, like it was just a thing that happened. And like other things that happen, I'll respond to it. And after I respond to it, other things will happen. And then I'll respond to those things. And things will continue to happen until I'm dead. And it's possible that things will happen after that, but I don't know, so I'm not going to worry about it. Rather than focusing on the circumstances of what has happened, taking this as an opportunity to focus more on how you react to what's happened. Talk about that a little bit. Or a lot. Yeah. Ever since anger became my predominant reaction as a teenager, I've had an all-or-nothing worldview. So things, as I've said to many people uh, over the years, things are or they are not. And there was no wiggle room. So things are good or bad. Things are right or wrong. Um, and there's there's no gray. Gray is uh, intellectual dishonesty, moral cowardice, laziness, weakness. It's abhorrent. So... That's a really difficult way to live because it's exhausting. It's isolating. You're always given cause to be angry and things rarely work out in your favor um, because you can't enjoy anything unless it's, you know, unless it falls on the right side of, of the binary that you, that you see things on. As I have done emotional work and I don't know. Uh, well, you could, you could say I've co-opted, uh, Buddhist principles or I have applied Buddhist, Buddhist principles to my life. You've culturally uh, appropriated Buddhist principles. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I've, I've culturally colonized, um, Buddhism for my secular purposes, which actually <laughs> one of, one of my favorite things the Dalai Lama has ever said is, uh, or I guess the, this incarnation of the Dalai Lama, um, is oh, oh boy. that the <laughs> yeah. um, uh, that the goal of Buddhism isn't to become a better Buddhist; it's to become a better whatever you are. And I've used uh, Buddhist teachings to become a better whatever I am, um, whatever it is that I am. And that's just to I've learned to view things with less judgment. Um, so. 
I have I have a radically different view of what happened at my last job than my employer did. And that's fine. Like I don't care to argue about it anymore. I did what I was able to um to respond to the feedback that I got. They felt the way they felt. I feel the way I feel. We're not going to agree and that's okay. They were the employer, that's their choice. And being upset about it does not benefit me. It doesn't change anything. It just increases my suffering. You know, I'm there's enough suffering already with the shock of losing a job, you know, the difficulty of explaining to my kids that daddy's going to be home more for a little while because I don't work for that place anymore. And, you know, yeah, you're not going to be able to see so-and-so as much or, you know, it, right before I came over here, I was talking my son in and he suffers from anxiety um, and maybe depression. Uh, I wish, <laughs> I wish that it, I wish that I had been seen uh, the way we see him now. You know, we, we are talking to him about about the leaps that his brain does uh, in situations like this because he was asking me how likely it was that we were going to lose everything we have and become poor. And yes. then he – Yeah. And then he said um, – and and that was like a total like rich dad poor dad moment where like I start talking about assets and uh explaining to him like like literally the timeline like if the apocalyptic worst case scenario is we're this far away from having to do this we're this far away from having to do this and you know in the in the there's a minuscule likelihood that we might get here but that's not that bad, you know, and we're lucky to be in this position and you don't have, you know, like don't lose sleep over this, you know, daddy's got this kind of thing. And then he says, he, he asks, you know, if there's any chance that we're going to wind up sleeping in a tent under a bridge, which seems like an extremely like hyperbolic little kid thing to say, except there's a woman literally who lives under a bridge around the corner from our house. And sure. There's, there's two homeless encampments um, in between us and her, um, which then led to another conversation about undiagnosed mental illness and why it's important for us to take advantage of our opportunities to take care of ourselves and to use our support networks and, and not let ourselves get to a point where, Mental illness makes it difficult for us to to function. And then, oh, by the way, we're incredibly lucky and privileged, and that's why we're obligated morally to help people who, you know, haven't gotten as stacked a hand as we have. So that was my, you know, tuck-in conversation tonight with my son. The day of, I'd, I'd done all my crying in advance, you know? Like, um, the day of was surgical, and... It, you know, it was like, okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. Peace. Good luck in the future. Um, and I really haven't, I've been thinking about it, but again, it's, it's, 
it's more of just turning it over like an object in my head and thinking about, you know, like, well, what if I'd handled this differently or, you know, what if I had done that? And it's, it's academic, you know, like I'm not, I'm not wishing things had turned out differently uh, again, cause that just, just creates unneeded suffering for me. Um, it's more of like knowing what I know now and having had that experience what do I want to do next and how can I be the person that I want to be? How do I, how do I want to show up every day moving forward and where do I want to show up? Uh, and, and how has this experience informed me, um, informed that, that thinking? Because I, I've been through a lot of shit in the past three years. Uh, and I'm not, the, I'm not the person who quit at the star. You know, where's the balance between advocating for what we believe to be right in a situation? And I'm not, you know, I'm not talking about politics or yeah. morality. I'm talking about you know, pro professional situations. Yeah. Um, advocating for what we believe to be the right course of action or, or defending a decision we've made or pointing an organization in one direction or another, whatever the case may be, you know, where do we draw the line between the, uh, strides we've made towards pulling back and seeing the bigger picture and empathizing with the opposing point of view. And uh, as, as you put it, uh, recognizing that we don't have to martyr ourselves as the consummate uh, accomplisher and conqueror of all things before us. How, how do we, how do we know when and where to, I, I guess, I guess my concern and, and now that I'm putting it in these words, uh, maybe it's not that big of a deal, but I guess, I guess my concern is an overcorrection in that sense. And that we've, yeah. we've seen the, uh, you know, the, uh, hellfire and the, the aftermath of the devastation that can be wrought by guns blazing at all times and, and, and lone wolfing it out in professional situations. Um, and yet, you know, is there an overcorrection where, we're, we're two Ned Flanders at our job, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, as a, as know. a wise, as a wise man once saying, the pain of war does not exceed the woe of aftermath. <laughs> the, the balance to me is understanding that acceptance does not equal resignation. Um, hmm. so one of, one of the knockdown dragouts I got into with my with my therapist was how do you how can you accept when things are wrong you know when a, when a situation is bad when poor decisions are being made or when you just you cannot accept that how something is and you know the this maddening circular answer is you just have to accept things like the universe doesn't care if you accept that something is the way it is. It simply is. And that's probably the closest I'll get to binary thinking again in my life. If I see a situation pointed South, I can't ignore it. Sometimes I wish I could. <laughs> no, you don't. <It's... laughs> no, I don't. So, you know, a, a thing is what it is. And, Number first of all, you have to accept that it is that way. Once once you do that, or once you start thinking about that, you probably will realize, or at least I realized, 
I'm not going to speak for other people. I've realized that when I'm in that situation and I can't accept something for what it is, it's because I am angry that it's not a different way. I'm angry that it, that it is the result of something that I didn't agree with or think is dumb or whatever. There's all this suffering of self going on that I need to let go of and just accept that it is what it is, that it's happening. It's out of my hands. I need to have the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The second part is I need to always own the fact that I can have the courage to change the things I can, that simply knowing that something is wrong and accepting that doesn't mean you have to resign yourself to it always being that way. So if you see something or you're in a situation where you don't feel like it's okay, you can try to change it, but you have to start by accepting that it is that way. And, you know, we've, we've all been in the situation. We've all been talking to people where their, their anger about it is rooted in all these other things that they just need to resolve or let go of so they can accept what the situation is. Once you've accepted what the situation is, you can do something about it in a productive way. That's not going to be rooted in bitterness or resentment or hurt or anger or whatever. It's going to be, a more it's going to be a purer desire to make things better or improve things or make them whole. I decided or I accepted a while ago. And this, this, this is actually a point of frustration. I think for some people that I talked to about it, I accepted that there's the outcome was out of my hands, you know, and, and people can say, no, you can do this and you can do this and you've got, you know, yeah, but I'm not making the decision. You know, I'm making a case, but I'm not the judge. So I have to accept, number one, that I'm not making the decision. Then I have to say, here are the factors that I can control, and I'm going to show up every day and control them, even though I know I can't control the outcome. So that's the balance. You know, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it or explain it any better. It's just literally the serenity prayer, you know, like there's shit you can't control, accept it. There's things you can do something about it. And then at the end, you're going to have to accept the outcome too. Um, sometimes it's going to work in your favor and sometimes it's not. And them's the breaks, you know, um, this thing didn't play out on paper in my favor. But yet, I'm happy right now. I'm content where I am, and I'm excited to be moving into a different era of my life because there's a lot of stuff that I want to do, and now I don't have to worry about the situation that I was in. And I don't, I don't resent anyone for it. I'm not I'm mad. I'm just ready to move on. It's a little bit more in the rear view. But it's but it's interesting because you know I haven't uh, had a boss in since two thousand four, and, <laughs> and and yet uh, you know in those fifteen years I've had uh, you know if you look at Hundreds it from right if you look at it from the other side of the coin I've had I've had numerous bosses and multiple at any given time. 
for all of the strengths and weaknesses that I had as an employee and adjusting to, I used to say that I actually counted once and at MTV News as a full-time employee there, I, I had eight bosses exactly like Office Space. You know, for all the, for all the uh, pluses and minuses of that situation, there aren't many professions where you're not dealing with people. <laughs> and and dealing with people means inevitably dealing with different forms of compromise. Um, and perhaps more importantly, or maybe more importantly for us, or for me anyway, accepting that there's going to be situations where you're not only going to be humbled, which has kind of a hippy-dippy positive connotation to it, um, but humiliated. And I think that was the hardest lesson to, to learn how to handle. And I mean, of course I'm, you know, still learning, but realizing how much of my professional life at a certain point was driven by a desire for recognition. Um, yeah. and, and, and much as, you know, acceptance and approval are, are different, uh, recognition and fame are different. Um, you know, I was never someone who was looking to be famous for its own sake. Uh, but I, but I certainly was and probably continue to be uh, someone who in a professional setting uh, wants to be recognized for, you know, talent, dedication, yeah. loyalty, trustworthiness, um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, respected intelligence, insight. Those are things that I've, I've definitely, through everything I've done creatively or professionally, am aspiring towards in some way. And, you know, some advice that I often gave and didn't internalize for a long time is the whole idea of defining success for yourself and, you know, right. realizing what the benchmarkers are for, you know, what's going to make you feel some sort of sense of fullness or contentedness. And I mean, and that gets into a whole other philosophical thing because I think our, our search for wholeness is, uh, half of our problem. Yeah. I'm so, about embracing the lack of wholeness these days. <laughs> so I spent, I don't know, up until a year ago, nine months ago, six months ago, um, trying to do things to make up for the fact that I needed my parents to tell me that they were proud of me. And... I, at some point, I had to accept that that there was nothing that was going to happen in my professional life, in my current home life, that was going to satisfy that need, and that I needed to take care of myself. I needed to let go of that shit and figure out how to take care of myself in the in the now. Um, because I understand that my parents love me. I understand that they're proud of me. They, for whatever reason, I didn't get what I wanted from those relationships when I was younger. And that left me with, you know, a lot of the anger and resentment that I, that led me to the hardcore scene. The challenge for me now at work is that I, come to work with such a fundamentally different perspective than I used to and that 
almost everyone that I've ever worked with does, which is I'm satisfied with my work. And if you are not, that's fine, but I'm not going to internalize it. It's, Mm. it's like, you know, if like you were talking about being humiliated or even, you know, in every in every job I've ever had, there's you know there's been politics. There's been people trying to, you know, leverage one person against another person, or or embarrass them, or or undermine them. And now when things like that happen, it's like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, like, you know, yeah. like okay, like it's it's unfortunate that you're doing that, and good luck. But I'm not. I'm not going to keep score. I'm not going to play. I'm not going to acknowledge that there's a game being played because I don't give a fuck. Um, I want to do what I do. I'm going to do it for myself. And when I finish it, it's going to be something I'm proud of. And that feeling is not going to be affected by how you receive it. So if it's not what you need for the client, if it's not what you need for yourself, if it's not what, uh, if it's something you're going to use as, an excuse to bludgeon me. That's interesting, but I'm not going to carry it around emotionally. And the danger of that is in this culture, people are going to read that as being disinterested or right. un- unengaged, right. which, okay. You know, if I'm going to die on a hill, I'll die on the hill of saying that our work culture in this country is fucking unhealthy and stupid. Yeah. Um, you know, and if well, spe- especially to- given now that it's constant and that immediate, Immediate responsiveness is required in uh, professional relationships and personal relationships because everyone everyone knows you've got the device in your hand and you're staring at it. So if you're not prioritizing their immediate need for attention in that second, you're somehow failing them. <laughs> and then that results in you constantly feeling like you're failing, you know, a dozen people in any given moment. Yeah, the bizarro thing is that I think some of some of this is actually rooted in when I was managing relatively large, you know, like hundred, two hundred thousand plus follower slash fan accounts. Um, really gave me a perspective about how little certain things actually matter, like the things that we freak out about on a daily basis how little they actually matter and how much the things that we don't think are a big deal actually do. So whether it's, you know, like in my, in my previous job uh, or the previous job before my previous job, um, there was a lot of wringing of hands about uh, trolls on Twitter and Facebook. You know, every time, every time the, the newsroom would publish something that someone didn't like, whether it was uh, whether they were accusing us of being uh, communist traitors or uh, shills for the alt right. There was like the common thing was unsubscribing, fuck you, you're trash. And then we could just look at the subscriber data. And there was no move. Like it's just it's <laughs> bullshit. Like you know, like yeah. you're in fucking Montana. You're not a subscriber. You know, GFO. So yeah, I remember on a on a smaller scale having this realization early into 
managing bands in the in the you know heavy music space uh there's a there's a site that pro again who knows who's gonna get what reference but there's a site called lamb goat that is well known in the hardcore scene for its cost comically caustic comment section yeah, super um, super positive, happy people there. Yeah, um, but the thing that I remember recognizing and then explaining to a couple of the bands that I worked with, is, you know, this is going back to like 2003, 2004, was, okay, so we put up a post that says um, Throwdown announces tour dates, and there are 40 comments, and all of them are terrible, ranging from... <laughs> play the old stuff your new stuff sucks to i hope your van flips over and you die in a fire you know and yada 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 and, and some of them comic and witty and clever but still mean and some of them just mean but what i began to understand was okay here's the comment thread and it says there's 40 comments and yep they're all bad here's the view count and it says it has forty thousand views so that means out of 40,000 people who clicked this, 40 of them felt the need to talk some shit. That means all the rest of them were interested in learning about your tour dates and clicked on it and got the information they wanted and went about their day. Yep. Uh, but, of course, uh, you and know... And 35 of those 40 people would probably still end up at a show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and something that I learned in the MySpace era, actually, too, kind of right around that same time, uh, kid comments... Uh, your new album, your new album sucks. You guys, you guys are sellouts now. You guys are lame or whatever. If the band account responds in really any fashion other than like you know fuck you or you're blocked or whatever, there's an immediate like acquiescence on the other side, and and not even so much backpedaling like oh you're just you know you're a, an internet tough guy. I mean, they and obviously this has changed a little bit because social media is such a more uh, ubiquitous thing but you know in those early myspace days they were just stunned to be hearing back from the band and it was like they thought that shit talking was in a vacuum oh yeah and then when they immediately when they got a response it humanized the whole thing and they sort of, and they went oh i mean well we'll do it i mean i just you know I, I love your band i've seen you guys five times i just you know i don't really like the new album but i can't, <laughs> I can't believe you wrote me back oh i'm sorry i was you know yeah, I was having a shitty day yesterday. Writing it, they're they're writing it as a performance for other people, so other people can see how true and cult they are. Uh, they don't actually think about the fact that there's somebody else consuming it on the other end. And I, we found that to be 100% the case at the Star. You know, people, people are are they will come onto a comment thread and tar start bashing the company, the journalist. And as soon as either the brand or the journalist weigh in, it's like 99% of the time the person jumps way back, fixes their attitude, mm -hmm. and says, well, actually, here's my thing. And then you can have a civil conversation with them most of the time. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, a few hardcore shitheads, but, you know, it's it's crazy. And it, there's a lot of emotional labor that goes into it because people's – the shitty stuff that rolls around in people's heads is now just easily spread online. It has been for decades now. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of at the forefront of the 
the first generation to grow out of that, you know, like I was, I was a message board shithead for a while and I retired from it because I realized what an awful person I was being. Well, and I think like many other things that sort of originated in subculture. Yeah. We, we had a lot of early experience with that message board world of, um, you know, people separated by literal physical distance saying things that they would never say in real life. And part yeah. of that, you know, it, it's easy to be dismissive of it. And, and of course, this is true of a certain percentage of people. But to say like, oh, you're just, you know, Internet tough guy, like you would never say that to my face. And I don't necessarily mean it in that way. I mean, much like you just said, where once you start engaging with the person, they immediately kind of dial back and sort of fine tune, uh, you know, what was you know, they get a little more surgical and precise about what they're actually trying to say. Um, yeah. I think it, it creates an atmosphere where, where people aren't themselves, you know, like they're, it's not just that like, Oh, you're being, you're, you're talking tough. Cause I'm not in front of you. I think it's, no, you're, you're being less of a human cause I'm not in front of you, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and you're, you're starting off with a baseline assumption that people don't care what you think. Uh, right. that, you're, that you're insignificant, right. that you're invisible, and that 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 distance renders you uh, less than. And when when you invest in hearing people and seeing them, even if it's in a comment thread, they change because that's what they want, whether they realize it or not. They just want to be seen, and which when gets, you see them, which gets really into the whole uh, current political situation and how Trump was able to get into office because, uh, yeah. you know, a whole bunch of people that felt like they were being treated as less than. Yeah. And which felt is, like, which, which is hilarious for lots of reasons that we can yeah. talk about later. Getting back to the, the earlier point about, you know, you, your original point that you were making that this doesn't actually matter. You know, you see a bunch of comments that say unsubscribe and then you realize your subscriber base hasn't changed. Uh, that was sort of my lamb goat point too was, uh, yeah, those 40 comments are awful, but um, it just seems like it's a big deal because those are the only people that are making comments. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's tens of thousands of people who aren't making comments because they don't have anything bad to say. Yeah. And just how much that those those angrier, you know, empty can rattling the most types of voices start to dominate the conversation. And a lot of it gets into the, uh, you know, I think a lot of it comes from as much as there's complaints about the media that I usually don't subscribe to. One of them that I think is correct in its criticism is the both sidesism that we've fallen into and the idea that, that balanced reporting requires an equal reporting. airing of two <laughs> opposite viewpoints um, yeah. versus equal, equal airing of incorrect provably false uh, <laughs> positions exactly and i and i think that that has driven a lot of um the the problem with you know what we're seeing maybe i was naive when i when i got into it um but i i always felt like the role of a journalist was to determine true things based on reporting like mm -hmm. you're a, you're a detective and you're trying to figure out if you know whether whether it's you know a band profile or whatever like you're trying to present true things in in a clear light and i don't i've never understood why just getting a quote that contradicts another quote is an improvement on 
just doing your best <laughs> to, you know, like yeah. make a, make a good judgment based on your knowledge of this subject. Can you clearly position, you know, the truth in a clear way? And if you can't, then you're just asking people opinions, which is not. And I think, and the, I think there's a misunderstanding about the, the diff, there's a distinction between contextualization and editorializing. Yeah. And there's a, there's a danger where, you know, people will accuse any kind of contextualization as editorializing. And it's like, well, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> it's not, you know, you're not editorializing calling, uh, Donald Trump a grifter. Yeah. <laughs> he is, he is the textbook definition of a grifter. Here are examples of him grifting. <laughs> He's a grifter, you know, but, and yet, you know, there's someone turning off this podcast right now because they're like, oh, so this guy's obviously a libtard, you know, and, and there, and, and sure, there, there is a lot of reporting that uh, falls victim on all sides of uh, confirmation bias. Um, on both sides. But, uh, it's, you know, by and large, like you said, I think the, the true role of journalism is um, trying to get at the truth of something and stripping away as much of the bullshit as you can, but also providing yeah. context with where people can measure the evidence, weigh the evidence, and draw their own conclusion. But yeah, somehow that got turned into, if you found somebody that says the grass is green, you have to find somebody who says it isn't, otherwise this yeah. story is biased. Yeah. There, I follow I follow a, a historian and history, I think he's a history professor, um, an author on Twitter, his name's Kevin Cruz, and weeks ago, you know, he, he's, he delights in debunking, uh, conservative mythology and he sort of specializes in the Southern strategy and, uh, confronting people on the right who claim that the democratic and Republican party switched sides essentially in their relationship with, you know, black enfranchisement, voter rights, civil rights, etc. Um, and somebody was coming after him saying like, you know, everything you say is, you know, like biased towards liberals. And he said, if your expectation of me as a historian is to summarize events of the past and then assign blame equally to multiple parties, unfollow me now. <laughs> you know, like, that's, right. that's not the point, you know, like, we we draw conclusions based on the best available information and that's what it is well we've covered a lot of ground in the first five episodes and next week we're going to be digging into our relationship with antidepressants so check it out if you like the podcast subscribe wherever you found it we would love it if you rated and reviewed uh, you can email us check in on social media. Let us know what you think. Thanks for listening.